Uh, November greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's final lecture series online edition. I'm Anthony Wong, program coordinator of the Institute, and I want to thank all of you for joining us this evening for our book talk, Uncle Rico's Encore, Mostly True Stories of Filipino Seattle with author Peter Bacho. Uh, this book is scheduled for publication in January 2022, and so we're honored to have a sneak preview of it tonight. Uh, Peter Bacho was born in Seattle, Washington, and grew up in the city's famed central area. Uh, he teaches at the Evergreen State College and is the author of seven books, Asibu, Dark Blue, Suit, Boxing in Black and White, Nelson's Run, Entries, Leaving Yesler, and his latest, Uncle Rico's Encore. Uh, Peter's books have received several awards, including the American Book Award for his novel, Cebu. Uh, his second book, Dark Blue, Blue Suit, won the Murray Morgan Prize and Washington State Governor's Writers Award. Uh, in 2005, Seattle University named uh, Peter the Distinguished Northwest Writer-in-Residence, and in 2008, Northwest Asian Weekly honored him as a literary pioneer, and so we're honored to have with us Peter Bacho. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, we'll proceed uh, this way. I'll, I'll do um, readings, um, the, the first excerpt. Uh, and then open it up to questions that students uh, or attendees might have. I'm not assuming everyone here is a student. But um, it's a mini memoir of um, uh, Filipino Seattle from about 1950 to 1970. And uh, uh, it chronicles a community that I consider to have been uh, very remarkable in terms of... Uh, uh, its ability to uh, uh, control its destiny, um, its ability to uh, resist enormous governmental pressure, particularly during the 1950s and the McCarthy era. Um, the union was led by a Filipino communist, the Alaska Cannery Workers Union. So you can bet your bottom dollar um, that the government drew out all the long knives and tried to kill, kill off the leadership, but uh, they failed. It failed. Uh, the union uh, was able to resist this, and uh, it's it's not known. I mean, uh, young Filipinos nowadays are, are pointing to uh, Delano, California, and uh, the um, central role of, of Larry Itliong. Uh, in the formation of the famed United Farm Workers. Um, and up until that time, Cesar Chavez got all of the credit, but it was Itleon that led the Pinois off, off, off the uh, grape fields. And uh, Chavez uh, followed, Chavez and the Mexican workers followed uh, after Itleon had moved. Well, that historical record is, is now being corrected, but I, I would argue that at least a significant event involving uh, Longshoreman Warehouseman's Union Local 37 occurred in the 1950s, although not many people know about it, um, in which uh, the union then was led by Chris Mensalvas, and um, he was a, a member of the Communist Party. You can imagine being a labor leader who was also a member of the Communist Party. Uh, uh, during the McCarthy era, you know the pressure was on. And uh, Chris uh, was a friend of mine. Uh, I knew him uh, as a young man. Uh, and uh, uh, 
He was, he was, uh, I, I could see why, why the, the old Filipinos were, were attracted to him. He was very charismatic and very brave. Uh, he is, uh, Pris was the character Jose, in case anyone is curious, in, in Carlos Bolusan's, um, oh, I don't know, it's kind of a mix of memoir and, and, and fiction. Uh, his work, America's in the Heart. Uh, however academics characterize it or uh, categorize it, I'm not really sure. But but he he was the character Jose in America's in the Heart, so he was a renowned figure. Anyway, uh, I'm going. I, I start off um, my collection right from the beginning, and uh, there are a series of seven maps uh, describing the places in Seattle. Uh, where uh, the old Filipino community, or where Filipinos lived, where Pinoys lived. And um, the first one is called Map, Filipino Seattle, 1950 to 1970. And I'll begin reading. Um, and uh, at the end, uh, if students have, or attendees have questions, uh, um, please feel free to to. Uh, make your inquiries, and I'll do my best to respond. Map, Filipino Seattle, 1950 to 1970. In my dreams, sometimes there's a map of the city I love. In almost 70 years, not much has changed. And that gives me comfort. On this map, I follow the lines north, south, east, and west, and find the intersection. 32nd Avenue East and Thomas. This is where my family used to live, in a small one-floor yellow house that's still standing. The location is the eastern edge of the central area, the historic home of Seattle's African-American community, or so the tagline goes. But the central area was also home to Filipinos, working-class whites, and other ethnic groups. On our side, the eastern side of the block, there was another Filipino family, the Burganos, a Japanese-American family, and three black families. Across the street lived an older white couple, Al and Olga Castle. As a kid, I loved our house and our block. I felt safe there, protected. I had doting parents, good friends, and enough to eat. In my 20 years of living on our stretch of 32nd, I don't recall the cops ever having been called. As an adult watching our nation go through powerful, earth-shifting racial convulsions, I love that house, that neighborhood, that street even more. I would leave that little house, fishing pole in hand, to join neighborhood pals for bike rides, or hikes to the lake, or the Arboretum Lagoon, or I would leave with my bat and mitt for Little League practice in Washington Park. And sometimes, especially during the summer, I would leave with a darker purpose, to ambush drivers heading northbound on 32nd Avenue East with my friends, a motley multiracial gang of vandals in the making. We would lie prone, hidden and still in the uncut grass, our pea shooters at the ready. Then we'd inhale, hold our breath, and ping cars as they drove north in the far lane. It was all great fun until one afternoon we hit a driver who'd left his window open. The peas flew and hit him 
upside his head. The red 56 Chevy screeched to a halt. The young white man opened the car door and started running toward us. You little motherfuckers, he screamed. We scattered, running through backyards, jumping fences, and disappearing into the woods. After several minutes of hiding in the trees and behind blackberry bushes, we eventually reemerged. And I bumped into Alan Bergano, my friend, neighborhood, and pea shooting Deadeye. Alan was worried. Do you think he'll go to our homes and tell our parents? I shrugged. Mine are out shopping. I walked a few steps, then stopped. What's a motherfucker, I asked. Although it's been more than half a century since I've been inside our old house, I remember minute details of each room, closet, and nook, as if I had visited yesterday. Most of my memories of where we lived are comforting and warm. But not all. Like late one night when I was eight, I woke up to the shape of a woman standing at the foot of my brother's bed. I blinked at first unbelieving and unsure, hoping I wasn't seeing what I was seeing. I took a deep breath and closed my eyes and opened them. I gulped. I was seeing what I was seeing. She was translucent and her hands were joined together, fingers pointing up as if in prayer. She didn't move or speak. I didn't think she was evil, a small comfort, but I was still terrified. Worse, I had to pee, and she didn't seem to be in any rush to leave. But I didn't want to get up and draw attention to myself. Having her float after me through the room, down the hall, and to the bathroom, uh, no thanks. Nor did I turn on the lamp on my bedside table, figuring that if the, if the light went on and she was still there, I could be in trouble. Dear Jesus, I was prepared for That fear was exhausting, and at some point I either fainted or fell asleep. To this day, I am not sure which. When I came to, or awoke the next morning, she was gone. I quickly scanned the room, then jumped out of bed and raced to the door. I still had to pee. As I look back, I've come to conclude that the ghost's visit was really a blessing. It was the first episode of a life full of moments I cannot explain. This left me open to the inexplicable, to an ongoing and deep sense of wonder and surprise. From that point on, I have avoided certitudes and written stone unbending dogmas, never once claiming that I now have all the answers. This is why things happen. Trust me, I figured it out. And then there was a time when I was nine and a Catholic priest molested me. I came home one day after school and there at the table sat this odd looking child sized Filipino man. He was sipping a Coke and chatting with mom and Bisaya, laughing at everything she said. I'd never heard a priest laugh, at least not the white ones I knew. Maybe they weren't supposed to. I had never seen a Filipino priest, but there he was in his miniature black uniform, complete with white collar. Oi, Peter, mom said. 
This is Father Veronico. He's from Cebu. He's visiting the Archdiocese. He's our guest tonight. I just stood there, unable to stop staring at this strange little man. Mom nodded her head. Psst. Don't be rude. Come here and introduce yourself. I walked two steps toward him, stopped, and extended my right hand. Veronico reached forward and grabbed me, pulling me in. Nice boy, he said, giggling as he hugged me tightly. Nice boy. I went limp. I was in my pajamas and lying in my bed when Veronico walked in. He was beaming, giggling, and holding in his tiny hand a black rosary. Your mother says you pray, he said. Yes, father, but I've already prayed. Veronico looked at me sternly. My son, you can never pray enough, he said as he slipped in beside me. Our father, he began, as he placed a hand on my groin. Who art in heaven, I dutifully replied as his short fingers started massaging me. And so it went. We finished the rosary and he left the room. I turned over on my side and fell asleep. More than 60 years later, my initial reaction to this incident puzzles me. Unlike other victims of sexual predation, I had no recurring nightmares, no suicidal thoughts, no feelings of guilt or shame or violation. For me, it was just an odd moment with a strange little man. It happened. I moved on and never told mom or dad. But over the years, I think I found an answer. Because of my mom, ours was a deeply religious home. Sex, as far as I can remember, was never mentioned or ever done within these walls. In our impenetrable sex-free bubble, people did not do what people do. In my nine-year-old world, sex and sexual monsters did not exist. After all, Mary, a virgin, gave birth to Jesus. Did it happen again when my sister Irma was born? I had no clue as to how that came about. At age nine, I was asexual and innocent, and that invincible Catholic innocence I am now convinced is what saved me from the residue of Veronica's heinous crime and sin. Years later, I was in Seattle visiting mom. She was at the stove, tending to an almost done chicken adobo. I was sitting at the kitchen table, enjoying the fragrance, sipping coffee and reading the newspaper. Then a headline caught my eye. Pedophile lawsuit rocks archdiocese. My head, my heart started to race, and I put paper down. Mom, whatever happened to that priest? I casually asked. Which one? She said without turning around. That little guy from Cebu. Oh, Father Veronico. Yeah, Father Short Eyes himself. A moment. Short Eyes. Oh, nothing, Mom, nothing. 
She hovered over the pot, dipped a spoon, and sampled the sauce. Almost done, she said with her back still turned, as she added a pinch of salt. Oh, so what did he say? Who? Veronico. Oh, he says he's well and he's in charge of an orphanage in Cebu City. Oh? He says he loves his job. I'll bet. I then turned to the side. Burn in hell, I whispered. You motherfucker. Mom turned around. She was smiling. The adobo son. It's ready. Map seven. This is the end. There are seven maps. And they they span the the period of time that that I focus on. But this goes a little bit beyond. It goes to... It goes to the end of things, the end of my mom's life. In my dream, the date is September 7, 2019. I am at the Calvary Cemetery on 35th Avenue Northeast, standing inside the brick mausoleum in the northeast corner. A Filipino priest solemnly leads us in prayer and then addresses my family, other relatives, and close friends. At the end, we enter my mother, who lies next to my father, who died in 1994. My sister, a nephew, and my niece are crying. They are inconsolable. Others are crying too. But I do not. I do not because my mom's death was such a long-running affair. Ever since the onset of senile dementia several years earlier. During that time, as she began to enter her world of dreams and vivid memories, I mourned because I knew how this would end. At the cemetery on that day in September, I have no tears left. After I return from California, I would drive up to visit her each Sunday, and we would sit and chat at the breakfast table. It was our wandering son returns home ritual, one we both enjoyed. Over time, what she would say, once so funny, wise, and focused, becomes increasingly incoherent. Over time, her words change into fragments, Fragments of thought trapped in the loop. On one visit, I bring her the Seattle Times. When she was younger, she loved reading the newspaper, especially the fat Sunday edition. She loved being informed. It is an attitude and a habit she's passed on to me. I am thinking and hoping that maybe reading will engage her mind and strengthen her focus. We are sitting at the dining room table and I hand the front page to her. She smiles and thanks me. The mom starts reading, but after a few minutes, she suddenly puts the paper down. You know, I still have property in Cebu, she says. I know, mom, I say. I do, you know. She then resumes reading, turning pages and mumbling and nodding at news stories she likes while frowning and furrowing her brow at stories she doesn't. Mom adjusts her glasses and squints her eyes. She seems engaged, good sign. And I am hopeful as I sit quietly sipping coffee and nibbling a slice of toast. After half an hour or so, she puts down the paper again and looks at me. I'm thinking that a story might have caught Mom's attention bringing her joy or firing her indignation. I smile. Well, mom, I begin. So what's in the news? 
I still have property in Cebu, she says. At the cemetery, I am praying for my mother, hoping that she is peaceful and well. I try my best to concentrate, but my mind wanders to the start of this year and the events that quickly follow. Short order, the youngest son of a close friend, a wonderful couple, unexpectedly dies. Then I come down with bronchitis, which I ignore. It's just a cold, I assure Mary. I'll get through this like I've always done. In the last 20 years, I have rarely been sick. And on those rare days that I was, I was, my body has always quickly bounced back. It was a point of pride, a foolish arrogance. Why should this be any different? A few weeks later, mom is admitted to the ICU at Swedish Hospital in Seattle. Our family is on death watch. Mary and I drive to Seattle on a cold to the bone blustery day. We spend the night taking turns and saying by her bedside. My bronchitis worsens. Although I don't realize it, it turns into pneumonia. I ignore that too. Somehow, mom manages to cheat death. The doctors release her and she returns to my sister Irma's house. I tell Mary I'm driving to Seattle to say goodbye. You can't, she says. Look at you. You're exhausted and sick. You need to go to the doctor. I've got to, I say. I'll see the doc later. When I arrive at Irma's house, Leo, Irma's husband, opens the door. Mom, wrapped in blankets, is sitting on a couch in the living room. Because of my fever, I stay on the porch and wave. Mom smiles and waves back. She recognizes me. It's a rare, precious moment of clarity, and I am glad. Peter, my son, Peter. Oi, Peter. I love you, Mom, I say. You are the best mother I could have ever imagined. She smiles brighter this time. She waves again. I then repeat what I said, this time in Visayan. Mom's eyes flutters. I take it as a sign that she knows what I'm saying. She blows me a kiss. Goodbye, Mom, I whisper before taking a deep breath, turning around and walking to my car for the long drive back. Once at home, I sleep for the next 24 hours. I am exhausted, running a fever. But the next morning, March 27, I feel a little better and get out of bed to brew my morning coffee. I take a sip, happy to taste its sugar and cream sweetness and feel its warmth seep into me. I then stand, but the coffee does not stay down. I bend over and vomit, then grab a towel to clean the mess up. This is strange, I am thinking. In a life of almost 70 years, I can remember vomiting only twice. I am woozy, but start wobbling down the hall to the bedroom. Then I vomit again. This time, Mary rushes up to me. She doesn't say anything. I need to lie down, I say. I'll be okay. I just need to lie down. No. She says firmly, you're going to the ER. Mary's decision saves my life. I remember walking with Mary into the ER at Tacoma General Hospital. I remember sitting down 
I don't remember anything else. You went downhill quickly, Mary tells me months later. When your heart failed, you screamed. It's the scariest sound I've ever heard. Mary paused. Your lungs were filling with fluid. All of your systems were shutting down. I'm minutes from losing you. Maybe for a moment I did lose you, and you came back. I'm not sure. She looks away and takes a deep breath. The ER doc, your condition, the situation is beyond his ability. I'm frustrated, scared, so I scream. We don't have time. Get me a goddamn pulmonary specialist, someone who can handle this now. I chuckle. Mary's not a large woman, but she can be fierce and persistent, a tireless and sometimes joyful beater of brows. During our years together, I've been the occasional target of some of my wife's ear-piercing screams. And so, I ask, knowing the answer, she stretches and stifles the arm. Why? A specialist shows up, Mary says, of course. And he says, you have a pulmonary edema accompanied by acute heart failure. It's the worst he's ever seen. He's going to intubate you and shoot you full of meds. He tells me it's the only thing that might save your life, but first he needs my permission. And then, go for it, I tell him. I smile and nod. Hmm, that sounds like Mary. Then I get curious, Mary says. Doctor, I say, how many times have you done this before? Twice, he answers, and starts walking toward you. And so, uh, what happened? He turns and looks at me. They both died, he says. But I didn't die. I say, dang, you saved my life again. That's what I do, Mary says. According to Mary, I woke up in a hospital room three days later. But before then, I am floating in a vivid world of dreams. In one scene, I'm on a boat, fishing for snapper in the sound. As soon as I land one, I scale it, fry it, and eat it. In a later episode, I am visiting with family and friends and meeting people I haven't met, but would meet later when I return to the flesh and blood world. That includes a lovely Ukrainian nurse with whom I share a vivid, lascivious dream state interlude. Hmm, this isn't so bad, I'm thinking at the time. The doctors, nurses, and med techs make their rounds with the doctors in particular, in particular, carefully explaining my condition and the options available. Well, says my attending doc early in my recovery, we now have to consider a heart transplant or maybe a stent. These are possibilities you must consider. He is solemn and I nod solemnly. Although I don't say anything, I just hate the idea of being cut open. During my life, I have never had even minor surgery. No tonsils removed, nothing. This is the record I desperately want to keep. Besides, I liked the heart I was born with. It was wounded, not killed. About a week into recovery, I have an epiphany. I suddenly remember that the heart is a muscle which means that with enough good nutrition, exercise, and rest, it can recover. And to everyone else's surprise, I am recovering. 
quickly. But I'm not surprised. The endless battery of tests tells me I'm on the way back. With each passing day, I grow more confident, almost giddy. Surgeons, keep your damn scalpels away, I want to scream. Anesthesiologists, go away. Put someone else under, not me. My attending doc comes by as he always does. I formed an opinion. I like him. He's a nice young man, highly competent, and a graduate of an excellent medical school. But he's by the book and probably won't accept what I'm about to tell him. Doc, I say calmly, I won't need surgery. I explain the circumstances leading to my collapse. Weeks of depression and exhaustion, a serious illness. My heart attack was caused by a perfect storm, I continue. And of course, under those circumstances, my heart collapsed. But those conditions are gone now. My mind is clear, relaxed. Right now, my heart is using this time to repair itself. So, I pause and look at him, searching his face for a sign. Maybe a skeptical grimace. But the doc is calm, scientifically distant, appropriately professional. No hint of giveaway. That mind-body thing, such new-agey nonsense, he's probably thinking. I don't think he believes it, but I do, so I plow forward. I know my body and mind, I say firmly. I know what my heart's doing. It's healing. He nods, and this time, it's his turn not to say anything. Over the next two weeks, I continue to improve and will soon be released. My doc has stopped talking about surgery. Instead, he now suggests that I go home with an IV and wear a defibrillator vest, which would spark my heart just in case it went south. An earnest young sales rep comes in and fits me. He explains how this unwieldy, ill-fitting contraption works. I don't like it. Hmm, I say, while sneaking up. No way in hell, glanced to Mary knows exactly what to do. I smile, but don't say a word. The earnest sales rep leaves just as my nurse practitioner, a wise and kind professional. She walks in. She's been on this job for almost 30 years. By now, she is never surprised. The doctors, especially the younger ones, trust her and seek her advice. I extend my left arm. She will be taking my blood pressure. Peter won't be needing the vest, Mary says firmly. The nurse nods. Normal, she says, then pauses. Oh, and why? His heart is coming back, Mary says firmly. All the tests indicate he's almost normal. I'll tell the doctor, she says. Later, Mary torpedoes the take-home IV. Time is short. I am scheduled for release the following day. I don't have a background to monitor an IV, she tells my nurse. Mary is adamant, focused, about to growl. This is dangerous, she says. Lunacy. I'll tell the doctor, the nurse replies. My wife then follows up with a coup de grace. Besides, I feel a migraine coming on, she says as she massages her temples. She doesn't really 
But somehow she persuades herself to vomit. I'll tell the doctor, the nurse says. Mary's performance is so good, it buys me an extra three days in the hospital. Enough time for more good readings and test outcomes. It's also enough time for my attending doc to reconsider his IV proposal. When I am released, I am given a bag and a walker. The bag contains my medications and a date in July for a follow-up appointment. The vests and the IV are nowhere in sight. More than a year later, I am still alive and doing well. From my admission to the ER to the day of my release, I received first-class medical care, for which I am thankful. But here's what will stay with me, an indelible imprint for as long as I breathe. In my case, at least, the doctors and the medical staff listened to growling Mary and me. Others have told me that is not often the case. In my dream... I return to the cemetery. It is later in the day. The priests and the mourners are gone. I am alone in the mausoleum and listen with one more prayer for mom and dad. Then I stop in front of the niches containing the remains of many others from the old Seattle community. For whatever reason, a lot of Pinoys have chosen to be buried here. I know these names. I have known them for years. Organo, De Los Santos, Asena, several others. These Pinoys have known each other for years. This mausoleum is the old community's neighborhood of the dead. Before I leave, I make sure to greet them all and wish them well. I then walk slowly toward my car. On this very sad day, I am smiling. Years ago, I wrote a sentence about this very place. Friends in life, they've chosen to be together again. It was true then, it is true today, rest well. But for me, I tell myself, not yet, I whisper, not yet. We have a question from Chris Kwok. Uh, thanks you for your powerful and affecting uh, more. Uh, can you talk more about the size, history, and demographics of the Pinoy community in Seattle? Um, well, the central area is the main place. Uh, and, you know, Filipinos being Catholic, they're centered around probably about four parishes, uh, St. Teresa and Immaculate in the central area, St. James on First Hill, which included Jessler Terrace, which is the big housing project, and St. Mary's in the south end, and then... Um, south end of Seattle, and then a little bit farther than south, you had St. Edwards, and that was basically Filipino Seattle, maybe about three to 4,000 people uh, living there, and, and uh, almost all of them were uh, uh, families, uh, families formed by the first generation of immigrants that came to this land. Uh, I know my dad came uh, in 1923, I think it was, he was 18 years old. Uh, and, uh, you know, the depression starts in 1929. So you can imagine, uh, in addition to the racism, uh, just the difficulties and challenges that he faced. He was a migrant worker. Uh, Peter, how long did it take for you to gather together your thoughts in order to create this uh, publication? 
Oh, a bit. Uh, it was about two, two and a half, three years, I think. Um, but um, um, it was, yeah, yeah I, I tell my students uh, um, that, that a book is such that it's, it's going to take two, three, maybe even longer uh, 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 years of your life to think about it, to write it, to edit it, to 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 uh, reread it and to re-edit the edits that you've made and so on and so forth. That's a hell of a long wrestling match. And uh, I said, if I, <laughs> I'm going to, if I have one more book in me, it, it, it will be focused on thing on something that I really, really love. And uh, I love this community. I love the people that uh, I, I grew up with. I admired what it was that they had accomplished through both the first and the second generations. Um, and and I, adv- I advise students that unless you love what it is you're writing about, uh, if the goal is to, to be a book, unless you love that, it is such a commitment, um, then then you better get out of the business, you know, do something else with your time because you're going to end up spending, um, and it would, for me, it would have been a waste of time. If I didn't love this project, I wouldn't have done it. But I do because I think this community of, of all the communities needs to be commemorated. Uh, its story needs to be put on paper. And that's what drove me. Question from Noel El Monte. Uh, are the Catholic parishes you're referencing in Seattle almost exclusively Filipino, or did they have a... Mixed. Oh. They were ethnically mixed. Uh, black, Filipino, white, some Asian, some other Asians. But uh, 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 when I was uh, young, it was all, always assumed that if you're Filipino, you're Catholic. Of course, that's no longer the case today. It's much more diverse. But uh, certainly that was a mindset. Uh, when I was a kid growing up. So, I mean, you had, you had cultural bonds and ethnic bonds and, and religious bonds that, that made this community particularly cohesive, very cohesive. Uh, Chris, who asked the first initial question about the population in Seattle, Filipino population in Seattle, says that it sounds like an ideal community in regards to your answer to him. Uh, were there many families? And how is that possible since California, Pinoy, especially, was largely a bachelor society at first? Yeah, well, a lot of guys uh, went back after the war. So, I mean, you know, there, there's there's a lot of significant age discrepancy in many cases between um, one of the pioneering uh, uh, Manongs and uh, uh, the, the wife that he eventually married. I mean, there's about an 18, 20 year difference between my dad and my mom's age. And that's that's very typical. I mean, for, for um, folks of this community, at least some of them served in, in, in the first Filipino regiment. And this was uh, the, the regiment was was part of the liberation forces of the Philippines. And uh, this was the first time they had been back to the Philippines, and, and for many of them, at least in two decades. And uh, uh, our community is made up of uh, uh, people from the north. Uh, Ilocano was, was widely spoken in the community. And, and then from the south, uh, Bisayan, um, very few Tagalog speakers. But when uh, the, the, the first regiment came back to the Bisayas, because this is where, you know, their military campaign started. Uh, of course, they ran across, uh, they came across uh, 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 younger women uh, that they courted and eventually married. And, and so, so you know, the, the, the fathers in many cases would be these older Ilocanos and the mothers and, uh, of my peers in many cases would, would be Visayan women. 
and and that's where uh, uh, that's where uh, you know the the families of, of that old community, many of them uh, were established. My dad went back after the war, and he, that's where he, he married my mom, courted her, and married her, and brought her here, and promised that uh, he'd take care of her, and that he was a big shot. <laughs> but in fact, he was. He was still doing migrant work. And uh, I remember the story. I, t- I talked to my mom about this. And uh, we were, my brother had just been born. And my dad was running an asparagus crew in Walla Walla, which is like about uh, 250 miles away from Seattle. So we were driving there. And then we got to Walla Walla. And um, the housing conditions were just absolutely miserable. It was hot, dusty, you know, um, just really hard to imagine sorts of conditions and mom tells them quite frankly you're gonna to have to stop this nonsense this migrant work uh, you're gonna to have to settle down and get a job otherwise i'm taking the kids and i'll never see you again that's what he, that was, that's what she told him yeah and so that that uh cut down my dad's wandering ways this is the only life he knew he was a migrant worker. It's the only life he knew. He followed the crops, and in the springtime, he went to Alaska and then settled down for a little bit and then followed the crops again. That's that's how he lived his life. Uh, Sandra has a comment. Uh, it's so sad that the father, the, the priest who you mentioned in the uh, first reading, ended up working for an orphanage, but uh, she likes how you had the story where you first introduced and then insulted them uh, with the insulted and then repeated it again towards the end towards the father yeah uh, now your title uncle rico's mostly true stories of filipino seattle now did your mom actually have property in cebu <laughs> yeah she did she did but she'd sold it and she forgot about it yeah oh, wow. <laughs> yeah she she had uh it, it got trapped in it got trapped in a memory loop she had she had forgotten about it uh the last five six years uh we're difficult. We're difficult for everybody. Uh, because my mom, um, uh, when, when she was coherent, was just sharp and funny. And it was just sad to, to see the deterioration occur. It's heartbreaking. Uh, now, in regards to sort of the, the ideas of what you want to put into this particular memoir, were there uh, any particular stories you had to cut out? Because they were, they were too too hard to put in. Well, there, there are some stories that, that I omitted. Um, one of them involved, and I, I, the the reason I admitted it was was because I couldn't find I couldn't find the sources. I remember as a kid uh, growing up, it must have been sixty six or sixty seven, um, and as in my teenage years, and there was a, an infamous altercation downtown involving. Uh, uh, one of my uh, Filipino peers, a guy by the name of David Daba, and this white guy by the name, young white man by the name of Michael Santri. Uh, and uh, it, it happened uh, early Sunday morning. And uh, David and uh, his other pal uh, had, had just gotten done shooting, um, shooting pool, and they were walking up by. Fifth Avenue by the Olympic Hotel, and they they crossed. The Santri and his friends were crossing, uh, and uh, uh, Santri started the, the the confrontation, called him 
you know, whatever racist name. And uh, they started fighting, and uh, David pulled out a knife and killed him. Um, and then the, the it wasn't the trial so much as 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 the publicity. I remember, I, I think it was the Seattle Post Intelligencer, which was the morning paper back then. Uh, they made it a headline event, like uh, uh, people from the margins are attacking. Sanjay comes from a very very prominent family. His father was a physician. And uh, he was a student at Seattle Prep, which was an elite Catholic high school. Um, uh, never mind that he started the fight. He was much bigger than David. Uh, but that um, it 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 you know the the sixties were time just an enormous uh, tumult and and uncertainty. Because young people, particularly young people of color, were, were beginning to challenge uh, uh, the norms of, of society. And uh, here, this was being played out on, on the streets of Seattle, where someone from this lesser group uh, dares to attack uh, someone from uh, you know, the well-established elite group. Uh, and and uh, David was painted literally as... Uh, as uh, you know, the son of Satan, basically. I mean, he was he was he was tried in the press by the Seattle PI. Uh, they they had a vendetta against him, and and uh, a vendetta just kind of laden with with racial and racist overtones. Okay, let's let's flash forward. Just to, I think the spring of that that year. Uh, another Filipino guy. Uh, is, is driving along, I think it was Rainier Avenue, or is riding along Rainier Avenue. I don't know if it was a driver or 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 or, uh, or, or the or passenger. And he gets into a verbal beef with, with an African-American guy, takes out his gun and shoots him, kills him. And um, Dinesh was the last name of, 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 of the victim. Um, and from the Seattle PI, not a peep. There was not a peep. In other words, uh, the, the life of Michael Santry uh, was valued uh, at a much higher level uh, than the life of Dinesh, even though Dinesh was, was pretty much innocent. All they were doing was exchanging words. Uh, Santry was the aggressor. But uh, just the treatment of of, of these two victims of violence at the hands of two different Filipino boys um, was striking to me. It was striking to me even then um, that uh, Seattle, a town that I was very comfortable in living, uh, living in, uh, had, had this this undercurrent which was brought out of, of, of racism, or at least you know the. The, the the powers that be, and that included the PI, because I know it's hard to imagine nowadays, but newspapers in those days were really instruments. Of, they 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 were they were uh, institutions of, of enormous power and influence. And uh, in one case, um, Santry's death, they they chose chose to make it a, a public trial, a trial by publication. And the other one, there wasn't even a word. I think there was kind of one <laughs> one some small. <laughs> One small column, maybe it wasn't even a column, uh, buried way off the front page, uh, in, in which uh, the assailant, in this case, 
um, ended up killing a black person. Well, I guess the black person's life is not as important as the white kid's life. So that was very clear to me. Very, very clear to me. Uh, now, uh, why is your title, why does it say mostly true stories? <laughs> because I'll give you an example. Um, and I'll, and, um, because memoir is, is your recollection of things. Um, right. Maybe maybe things happen this way, but it's your interpretation. Um, and uh, you never, you're never going to get caught. But I, I decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna stretch it a little bit, and um, and I, I take that notion from, uh, I borrow it from the, the great American author, uh, the the one who wrote uh, not the Sorrow of War, but uh, the things they carried. Okay. The things they carried, uh, and I can't remember the author's name, but he, he wrote once that, that in telling, um, and telling a war story, uh, don't let the facts get in the way of, of a good story. <laughs> and, and I've taken that message to heart. Um, uh, and I, you know, I, I tell, tell my readers that, look, um, I'm going to tell you some good stories. Okay. Most of them are going to be true, as I remember them. But uh, there are going to be a couple in there in which uh, I am going to uh, mix just a little bit of fiction to bring home a, a larger point. And um, I think we've got time for one more. And, and, and as long as you... You advise, inform the reader that, hey, look, what I'm going to tell you are good stories. And, and about 90% of them are based on fact. But uh, be aware, there are times when I think it is appropriate not to adhere that closely to fact. And uh, let's see if I can find the story. The Fishing Man is the name of the story. Okay. And and the, the point is bigger than, than the fact that I introduced Ted Williams as a character, the great Ted Williams, um, uh, Boston's Hall of Fame uh, outfielder, right? As a young boy, I loved to read it's from books and magazines, books and newspapers to magazines, especially magazines. And especially Field and Stream with its glossy pages on which my 11-year-old eyes could ah and ooh at photos of red-striped tail-walking trout in their distant pure mountain creek homes. Next came the stories of the intrepid fly-fishing white men who caught and sometimes released them. Nature as it should be. Such noble and beautiful fish, I thought at the time. Such noble and handsome men, none of whom I was sure called Seattle Central Area, Chinatown, or South End home. I wanted to join their ranks, but first I had to research how to become one of them. 
I grabbed the dog-eared Sears catalog on the coffee table in our living room, skipping past for the first time. Women's summer beachwear. I'm going straight to the sports section. The realm of the regal Ted Williams. And there he was, Boston's Teddy Baseball himself, fly fishing pole in hand, looking straight at the camera, looking straight at me. Ted winked and smiled. Ah, uh, um, Mr. Williams, I stammered. Oh, forget it, kid. He says, I don't care how many paper routes you have or how much your allowance is. This pole, just by itself, look at the price, for Christ's sake. You can't afford this. Nope, no way. And then there's a travel that costs a lot of money to get to Montana or Idaho or Wyoming, where the pretty fish live. No way. I nodded. The great William stared at me fondly, like maybe he was worried that speaking an obvious truth had hurt my feelings. Or like maybe this conversation mattered. He smiled. Hey, kid, how old are you anyway? 11, but I'll be 12 in a couple of... Ted chuckled, cutting me off. Hey, don't feel bad. When I was your age, I couldn't afford this either. My mom, she's Mexican. Bet you didn't know that. Ted frowned and shook his head. You know, back in my day, being Mexican in San Diego wasn't easy, but I locked out. There was baseball, of course, and I was better than anyone else. But Williams? Hey, just like any Anglo name, right? So I had it a little easier. Now, uh, what about you, kid? You're what? Filipino. Mm, I thought so. Plenty of those where I come from. Hard working, friendly, nose in the dirt, sweating out in the fields every damn summer day, just like Mexicans. Just like Mexicans, they born poor, they die poor. Hell, none of them are rich, at least not the ones I knew. Ted closed his eyes again. He shook his head. I was lucky, kid. Baseball, my, my last, my last name. Got to avoid much of that. He took a deep breath before refocus on me, refocusing on me. You love baseball? Yes, sir. You love fishing? Yes, sir. What do you use? <clears throat> a hand line, I replied. My dad and me on Sundays after mass, we go to the docks west of downtown on Elliott Bay and jig for shiners. Sometimes we get lucky and catch a perch. It's fun. Dad says he did this a lot during the Depression. Then sometimes on Saturday, if we ain't playing ball or something, me and my pals, a bunch of us, we just hop the two Madrona, get off downtown, walk to the dock, do the same thing. Ted nodded approving. Well, it's not stream fishing for Browns in Montana. That's for sure. But it's a start. A lot of poor boys get started that way. But what you need now is a pole, just not a fly pole. And you can get one cheap, or at least cheaper. And all you got to do is toss the bait from shore where the bigger fish are, and just sit back and wait. Thanks, Mr. Williams, I said before closing the catalog. I turned and walked out of the room. Anytime, kid, I heard him say. Okay, I was getting close to checking out now. <laughs> That's just the start of it. Anyway, Anthony, yes. I guess that's it, huh? Uh, if folks don't happen to have any other additional questions, I guess that is it. And I did not know that Ted Williams was half Mexican. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, that's I mean, good. yeah, yeah, the Ted, uh, Ted Williams jumping out of the Sears catalog to hold a conversation with me. 
that of course did not occur, but but uh, just by the title of, of of a collection itself, a writer's job is to write. A writer's job is to tell a good story, and adding Ted Williams helped me tell a good story. Christopher has got a question: How did Seattle become the destination of choice for Filipinos? It it really well for one thing, this is where the, the this is where the the, the you know the, in terms of the lower. Uh, 48, which was then before Alaska was a state. Uh, Seattle was important because it was the dispatch point. This is where contractors gathered up workers uh, to, to, to work in the canneries um, uh, and Alaska salmon canneries. That was the, the summer, spring and summer part of, of the migratory uh, route that, that my father and his peers followed. Uh, and, and so it was a natural stopping off point. And uh, contractors, Filipino contractors that were already here, would get word back to the Philippines, encouraging their townmates to come to Seattle uh, for employment and, and the salmon canneries. Uh, if there are no other questions, ah, Noel has one. Okay. And he's actually curious, uh, had there been a language barrier also within these communities as Filipinos are coming from different provinces? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think because the, the, the Philippines was an American colony at the time, um, uh, Filipinos, to different extents, had had had, had a smattering or, or maybe even uh, a fluency uh, in English. So the, that I mean, when when Visayans couldn't understand what the hell people from the locals region were saying, and vice versa, uh, then they could speak in English. Um, my uncle Rico. Uh, did not speak, uh, he wasn't very good in English. I mean, you know, even though he had been educated in, 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 in the Thomasite schools, spent some time with the Thomasite schools, English was always for him uh, a very, very foreign language. My dad was a little bit better. My uncle Vic was very good. So, I mean, the, the range of expertise in English um, uh, was... As 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 broad as you can imagine, or as long as you can imagine, and like it goes from my uncle Rico to my uncle Vic. One can barely speak it; the other one speaks it fluently. Folks, if you're interested in reading these good stories, fantastic stories, uh, Peter's book is out in January. He has a whole bunch of other readings scheduled on the West Coast. Uh, is there a website that they could actually go to to find out the entire schedule, Peter? Uh, contact um, the University of Washington Press. Kate, uh, he uh, marketing at the UW Press. Just drop them a line and see where I'm going to oh, be. Uh, in, in yeah, that's the official debut in February. Yep. And with that, uh, enjoy your upcoming holidays. Happy Thanksgiving, and remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need. Uh, good night, everyone, and thank you very much, Peter, for joining us. Good night. <laughs>